Everyone has stories of shitty business in sports. I really was questioning everything that was going on. I'm not convinced this guy's going to be a huge offensive contributor. Negative Nancy, negative Nancy back on. It doesn't really matter. It's the earth's ladder round. Welcome to episode 11 of Digging In with JPR and Sevia. I'm your host, Nick Ashbourne. And we're coming out of the All-Star break, barreling towards a trade deadline, but it's not trade deadline show yet. Today we've got a great guest on the podcast, arguably the most literate man in baseball, Chris Archer. Yeah, he's pretty dang good. Uh, He's a special guy. Obviously, uh, just coming off his last start of 13 strikeouts, so I think that he's another guy who is is in the conversation of – is he going to stick around? And this is the fun time for, for baseball. It's a lot less fun for players because you're – I mean, I think Jay Happ answered that question. He's, he, said, he said that he was – it's been kind of messing with him and he doesn't even want to go there. Uh, you don't know where you're going to be the next day, and it's kind of an uneasy feeling. Everyone's telling you you're going to go somewhere. But um, he's Archer's a guy I think that has that opportunity, and this is a really weird uh, time for guys because a lot of guys grow up in organizations and end up in a new organization, as we saw with Manny Machado. And, uh, you know, you hear about Jonathan Scope and, and uh, him breaking down and crying about it. So it's it's people forget, again, we're all humans and, and we're creatures of habit. And when you've grown up in one organization, um, there's a lot of special things and it kind of messes with your head uh, with the trade deadline and stuff like that. But I'm excited to see what happens. And uh, Chris Archer, again, he'll he'll have a lot of good answers, and I'm excited to talk to him about a lot of different things. Yeah, we're going to discuss that and the effect that's had on him in this interview because he's a guy whose name has been in the rumor mill, not just this year, the year before, off Like We've been hearing about Chris Archer trade rumors for it seems like two, two and a half years just because the Rays haven't quite been there, and he's got this great contract that almost any team can take on. So... Uh, if anyone's got experience with this right now, it's definitely Chris. Yeah, and like you said, he's he's a guy. I mean, when you're good, people are going to talk about having you in trades. And when you're the ace of a team that that is always constantly trying to get prospects, people know that they can go there. I mean, the the, the Rays are very um, a, a team that's very known for either, like you said, locking somebody down with a very team friendly contract, a la Chris Archer. Or having David Price, who'd never signed a contract and went year to year in arbitration, and they eventually had to get rid of him. So you know that, I mean, it's going to happen eventually with Blake Snell. I mean, he's going to be a guy who I don't know if he's going to ever sign a contract there and they're going to ever pay him what he's he's worth. So he'll go year to year and they'll eventually have to, to let him go. But, yeah, Chris Archer will will be a guy and, I mean, has been a guy, like you said, that that would be able to talk about it because every year, I mean, he hasn't he hasn't gone anywhere, but every year he was talked about. Yeah, pretty much every team in the league has had a headline at some point saying like X team is in on Chris Archer. So one thing you touched on there that I thought uh, was interesting is kind of where we're going next is when you're with one organization your whole career and suddenly that ends. And that's been a big talking point in Toronto on the basketball side with DeMar DeRozan, who did so much for the Toronto Raptors, was with them for so long, um, really gave his heart and soul to the organization and then was traded kind of abruptly in this Kawhi Leonard deal. And we're not here to break down basketball trades. You know, there are other podcasts where you could go for that for sure. But I want to ask you, JP, about your memories of leaving the Blue Jays organization because you were there for a long time in terms of drafting minor leagues you were there, and then you were non-tendered prior to the 2014 season. What does that divorce with the first team you've ever known feel like? Uh, I mean, it's tough. I mean, that's why. I mean, if you think about it, think about where I'm still at. I mean, that's it's kind of it's kind of a, a situation. I I still go around Toronto and I'm around the Blue Jays quite a bit because of how much it meant to me. I I got the opportunity to live out my childhood dream for a team. They drafted me. I came up in their system. It's it's not even just the the making it to the big leagues. It's every team that I play for. You have relationship with coaches. You have relationship with players, and then you know you go to the next level and you meet new coaches, new players, and they have impact on your on your lives. And so you you just grow up in this this system, and then you get to the big leagues. And I got there, and I you know obviously had my debut and was a guy who was supposed to be, uh, you know, one of the staples and, and a, a guy who was going to be around for a while. 
And in 2013, here's here's one thing as players. I played hurt that second half in 2013. And I did it because I was like, hey, you know, I want to be a team guy. It's, it's Toronto Blue Jays, man. I'm these guys, this is my team. And I played every single game with my left leg wrapped up because I had a, a hamstring injury. And I, I, they knew that I was hurt. And I figured, hey, let's keep going to arbitration. They know that my numbers have suffered, but I played every day. And I was a, I was a gamer and a team guy and all this foo-foo crap. Well, at the end of 2013, my numbers sat where they sat. And my agent was like, hey, you know, you hit 21 homers. You played all the, you know, you played being banged up. There's no way they didn't intend to you all this stuff. And sure enough, I get the call uh, that that I was getting non-tender and that they were going to go with Dianir Navarro. And I was like, I was hurt because it was, it was a thing for me that I said, I had multiple people and coaches tell me, hey, go on the disabled list get healthy and come back because your numbers are your numbers, man, and it can affect you. Well, and, and for me, it was like, no, no, no. I I love this team. I love this organization. I'm going to go out there. Unless my leg is cut off, I'm going to do everything I can to go out there and, and, you know, play for this team. Well, it ended up hurting me because I probably could have gone on DL and, and been able to have a lot better numbers in the first half where my first half numbers were pretty good. And so – I would have would have had a completely different year, but for trying to do what I thought was the best for the organization and putting them first and being so into it, I got hurt and and I was upset when he called me. I you know, again I didn't know what to do. You know, you're like, imagine you grow up somewhere and all of a sudden they just take it away from you and there's nothing that you can say or do about it, and you know the competitor in you goes, yeah, well. I'm going to go and kill it somewhere else and, and I'll have a good, you know, it, they, it's their loss and stuff like that. But deep down inside, you're like, man, you know, I, I just got let go from the, from my, my dad in a sense, right? This is my, this is, this was my, my lifeline. This was my team. This was, this was everything. So it was, it was tough and it hurts. And I think that's why you see more and more guys now know or refer to it uh, as the quicker you know that it's a business, the quicker you become uh, better at the sport. You kind of the way you describe that to me sounds like it was largely sad, and that make that makes a lot of sense. It's a it is a loss. Was there an element of anger there where you're like, man, I like you said, like I did that, I made these sacrifices for this team. I feel like I put in everything for this team, and like you know, for this uniform, for this organization, and in the blink of an eye, I'm quite literally nothing to them in a sense because I'm gone. I'm out the door. Yeah, 100%. It pissed me off. It made me mad. I mean, it, it, it's, again, like you said, I, I thought I was being the the big, you know, team guy. And I and I was playing hurt and they knew it and, and I was going to be okay. And, you know, when that happened, I was like, man, F that. Like, what the heck? Why did I, why did I just put myself through a whole second half where I had – People ripping me to shreds. I was sucking on the field. I was playing without my left hamstring pretty much, which in any sport, if you don't have your legs, it's not you can't do it. And now I just get kind of thrown to the wolves, like, hey man, we let we let you go. And now I have to try to figure out where's you know, where do I have, where do I fit in? What job can I get? Where what team can I fit in with? Um yeah, I mean, I, I was 100% pissed off, and it's funny because a lot of people still to this day, which, listen, I, I believe all the things that happened for a reason, but a lot of people still to this day say, hey, man, Toronto didn't do you well in that whole situation. And could that be the fact or whatever? I mean, yeah, I don't think that they did me well, but I also go, okay, here's a team who gave me everything pretty much in my career, why I have the things that I have, why I was able to make it to the major leagues, and I, I still very much admired the organization, but for you know, for a, a little bit, uh, I was not happy. So I wanted to ask you, kind of bringing it back around to the situation with DeRozan, because he's talking about you know, there's no loyalty in this game. And then when the Raptors apologized to him, he kind of sent like some emoji out. I'm not an emoji expert, but it was a negative type of emoji uh, on Instagram. And do you think that other players around the league or do other players around a league 
whether it's the NBA or MLB, like really take note of how teams take care of guys like this. Like something like this that happened to you with the Blue Jays where you feel like, oh, that might not have been right. Are there going to be other guys who are watching that and saying, oh, do the Blue Jays take care of their guys? I don't know. Is, do you think that's a big factor kind of later on when teams are recruiting free agents or when teams are trying to get people to re-sign? Is that the type of thing that players are evaluating? A hundred percent. I mean, you think about it on the baseball side. So you look at baseball side, remember the Marlins, when we made that trade with them, Mark Burley, Jose Reyes, all those guys. Remember when the Marlins had just built a new stadium and they bought all these guys and all these guys went there because the Marlins had promised them that this wasn't going to happen. Well, the Marlins also backloaded the contracts on purpose because they knew that they were going if it, if it was something that didn't work out, they were going to get rid of them, which obviously came to fruition. And so I remember Mark Burley being pissed off about it and saying, you know, I bought my house. I was going to stay here, all these different things. And now, you know, he had to go to uh, – he had gotten traded to, to Toronto. And so, yeah, in that, in that sense, then it, it does mess with guys on the free agency side, right? Like they're going to they're gonna always have those questions. It's still hard to say, hey, if, if this is the team that's giving you more money, but by a lot, I mean, because a lot of times it doesn't always come down to money, but it does, then you're still going to make the decision – but at the end of the day, all that does is solidify what players are starting more like is it's a business. I'm not I'm not if once I learn, the quicker I learn it's a business, the quicker my emotions are out of it, then the quicker I can I can go out there and, and do what I do as a as a job and I don't really get it too invested. And it sucks because does it affect the relationships with you know, organizations, 100%. Does it affect, the for a player, the feeling of, like, really being settled? 100%. But I do think that now people realize that the business is shitty everywhere you go. And, I mean, you talk from different teams that I went to, and you talk to guys, everyone has stories of shitty business in sports. It is not a great thing. I mean, if you look at all the sports, there's a lot of examples of of front offices and people that'll sell the farm and then all of a sudden they just they'll shit on you when they have to do it and I I mean not maybe necessarily like shit on you but more like okay I'm not too I don't care it's it's a business like you know it's a business this is not a this is this is what they always say you know it was a business decision well when players now are going, I'm not taking the money, I'm not taking your, when Jose said, and he he said it, and it hurt him, I'm not taking a hometown discount, I'm not doing anything, because at the end of the day, we all understand how much of a business is, and some players understand how much of a business it is even better. They're they're good, they get that part, and so they just say, F the organization, They they love the fans, they love the players, they love the coaches, but there is a huge divide between, for the most part, between players and front offices because of, of just that, the, the business side of it. Yeah, and I think that that's a thing too when people talk about loyalty and potentially a team doing them wrong and things like that. The reality is the, any team would treat you that way probably. You know what I mean? Like if DeMar DeRozan is upset that the Raptors stabbed in the back, if it had been the other way, the Spurs would have done it too. Like it there is an ugly side to all of this in a sense because, you know, the GMs are playing with human beings like their chess pieces. That's that's a huge part of what sports is. And the, unfortunately, I think a lot of the enjoyment fans get out of it is some of that stuff. They like watching the chess pieces move around. They like playing armchair GM, but um, it is very easy to lose sight of who those chess pieces are. Well, even more... Obviously, right now, I think it's more prevalent than ever because of analytics. Analytics doesn't put together stats based on emotions and what this guy means to a city or what this guy means to a team. It's solely based on numbers. So you're you're no longer doing the human element of of a player. It's all based on numbers. A lot of decisions now are based on numbers. So if if you can eliminate somebody's head right let's say you just have a number on a guy's back and you have his stats you don't know who it is and you put them together that's how they make decisions a lot of times now and so again the human element of it is so far gone now 
specifically in this analytics age that, I mean, again, guys just know it. And is it does it suck? Yeah. But do you know that as a player you can be somewhere and possibly be somewhere the next day? 100%. And so, I mean, listen, DeRozan, I would say in the sense of for me, it's like, hey, dude, you got burned. Never forget that. No, that's – I know that you're upset. And that's and I and I love that he was he was very adamant about it because it shows how much people players really care, but you also know that it's a business and I wish that somebody would have told him, and made sure that he knew and understood more that it was a business so that he wouldn't be so emotionally tied to it because I'm sure like you know he he was obviously hurt by it. Yeah, and the guy that we're gonna talk to just now, Chris Archer, I think maybe he's a guy who's got a good perspective on it. Because as we mentioned before, he's been rumored to go everywhere. He's been ready to pack his bag seemingly for years. And also people forget too, because when you think of the Rays and young arms, you always think of development, but he was actually acquired by trade very early in his career as well. So he's a guy who's got experience on all sides of that. And that's who we're talking to now, Chris Archer of the Tampa Bay Rays. All right. So we, you know, we're talking here uh, with our guest, Chris Archer, one of the, the better right-handed arms in the game, one of the better human beings in the game, uh, one of the more entertaining uh, players and one of the more outspoken players. And part of uh, the conversation we've had, and you saw how I spoke about it as well, was with the All-Star game. Uh, that was one of the questions, uh, you know, that, that a lot of people have is, you know, how a guy – I don't think that the question was how Blake wasn't in the game. My question was – if he was going to start the game or not. And and so th- how do you think that we can we can better it? Because, and I saw your video, there, there has to be a way that, that this can go down in a better way. Certainly. Well, first of all, thanks, guys, for having me on. But, uh, yeah, Blake had such a tremendous year. And the voting process is a little outdated. It's a little ancient. I think, uh, you know, voting two and a half, three weeks prior to the – to the announcement of the team is a little early. Um, so I think if we did something, you know, more along with the time, like whether it's through an app on our phone or um, a computer system, an iPad tablet system that the league gives out, um, it would be much – and we did it like maybe five days before the, the results came out. It would be much more – um, rewarding and conducive and fair for the fans uh, to get the best product on the field. Because Blake was having a tremendous year, but those last three weeks, he, sorry, guys, there's a lot of wins. Those, uh, those last three weeks, um, he really he took it to a whole new level. And uh, I think people just, you know, they didn't realize that at the time of the voting. Chris, one thing we were discussing earlier in the podcast is the effect that trades have on players and trade rumors and stuff. And there's been a lot surrounding you. And honestly, for you, it seems like the last couple of years, we've been hearing your name cropping up again and again. And I was wondering how you deal with that distraction and what advice you would have for guys who are going through that, because it seems like you got more experience than anyone over the last couple of seasons. Yeah, well, uh, around this time of year, Opening Twitter or any social media uh, is just something you probably shouldn't do if it's if it's going to affect you. Um, and and I'm you know we're all human. The first the first time it happened, I really was questioning everything that was going on and curious, and and it had an effect on me. But as time's gone on, I've gotten more comfortable with it, and I, I understand you know, the business side of baseball. And um, I just, I take it all with a grain of salt because like you mentioned, it's been talked about for three years and, and nothing's happened. So it's tough to put energy into something that's not even happening. You hit on the social media thing. Uh, it's, I, I've spoken about it, you know, publicly, how it, it actually hurt me quite a bit is you put yourself out there and, and you have uh, the outlets of the social media. What are your thoughts on, on social media for players? And at some point, is there a way that we can be able to, uh, you know, have a, maybe a system or something that people can't just write whatever they want? Or Because, I, like you said, we are humans and all these things affect us. Yeah, well, JP, I know that you have a verified account 
as do most of the uh, big leaguers and most athletes in general. And there's certain settings on there where you can block people who mention your name that you don't follow. And uh, so I think going on there and, and handling that, like go on there and say, hey, I don't want to see my mentions from anybody who I don't follow. And then that way that eliminates literally hundreds of people, thousands of people being able to say whatever they want to you. You don't see it. It's a filter system. Um, so if it's, if it's something that affects you and during the season, I keep that on at all times. I don't see what people are talking about that mention my name that I don't follow. And it's, it's helped tremendously. Is there it, back in the days, what was the, what would get somebody blocked by Chris Archer? <laughs> Um, just the normal trash talk. Uh, cause I don't, I don't want to be any, uh, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, I don't want to see any negativity. Uh, social media is a great platform, uh, to help uplift everybody. It doesn't matter if you have one follower or a million followers, uh, you can have a positive impact on there and negativity and, and, you know, foul language and, you know, racist remarks. Just, I, I, there's no room for that in my life. There's enough stress that goes with our day-to-day -day. I don't I don't need to add that whenever I'm looking for news or entertainment on my through my social media Chris you've been uh, very thoughtful and genuine with us but uh, we like to also keep it a little bit ridiculous and silly as well although we appreciate the insight absolutely so I wanted to ask you something because it's very well known that you are a reader one of the bigger readers in baseball what yes, is what is the worst book recommendation you've ever received of all time? Because I know uh, I, I read a lot too, so people are always coming to me. They're like, oh, there's a guy who likes books, and they just throw recommendations at me all the time, kind of regardless of genre. So I feel like that happens to you probably even more, much more. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting how many people want to throw recommendations out there. Um, it's hard to even remember the titles because I get a couple pages in and I'm like, this is bogus, but it definitely happens. Um, I'm not a big fiction guy. So um, something in the fiction world that's just very basic and overly descriptive, uh, I, I don't remember any titles off the top of my head, but it happens regularly. And I've learned like I only take book recommendations from about three or four people like I don't. I, you just can't take them from anybody because we all have different interests. Well, and we also talk about different things, as such as hair. I obviously know that you can't grow face. You can't grow facial hair. I've seen your little. I've seen your chin whiskers. So what do you got going on the on the salad on the top of the head this year? I like. I like. I like the way you look. You have to use probably a hat. You have to use a hat that's much bigger. I'm sure now. But what's <laughs> was there anything behind it? What What do you got for me? Yeah, so uh, JP, in 2016, when we played together, I was working on the Afro. And then after that season, um, I just I wanted to have dreadlocks. So I started the dreadlock process um, in January or December 2016. And since then, I've just been letting the locks rot out. I feel comfortable with it. It feels like me. And... Um, I plan on keeping it for a little while. One of the best known Chris Archer ridiculousness things in the baseball world is your relationship with Orbit, the Houston Astros mascot. We are a Blue Jays podcast. I'm not sure everybody knows about it, but suffice to say it's been going back and forth. There's been a declaration of unfriendliness, which I don't know if I've ever seen in any other context. There's been a number of pranks. Where does that relationship sit now? And are you cool with all the other mascots in the league? Yeah, I have no problem, no issue with other mascots in the league. Um, you know, Orbit and I, it's, it's a complicated relationship because uh, I unfortunately I was on the uh, DL for a little over a month and didn't make the trip to Houston. And we were both genuinely upset we didn't get to see each other um, because it's fun. Um, and he's a good sport and I'm a good sport and, um, you know, it's just fun for the fans, too. Like, what's Orbit going to do next? And uh, the, the, the bad thing is he's got the last laugh, so he knows I got something for him. Um, it's just a matter of time until I see him again. Yeah, Orbit, I had my, my run-ins with Orbit, and, and you're right about the entertainment part. And, 
and I have, I mean, the question of entertainment has become huge now in baseball. And I had actually somebody the other day ask me uh, if, you know, if I'm was very upset with the way the way is uh, the game is going with with you know all the antics and all these things. And I think, listen, man, at the end of the day, we're entertainers. Uh, I think pitchers should be able to show emotion. I think hitters should be able to. I think everybody should be able to show emotion and and, and not have this this old school like mentality. What are your thoughts? You you know, uh, Mark Hanna the other day he had pimped the ball and he said, listen, I'm gonna bat flip. I'm just gonna bat flip. If you have a problem with it, then, then that. But that's what everybody's doing now. So, what are what are your thoughts in the way, kind of the way that goes down on the entertainment side of baseball? Yeah. Well, JP, my thoughts have evolved. Um, as long as you're not deliberately, you know, showing up the opposition, um, I'm cool with it. Uh, genuine excitement. People love to see that, and it's hard to contain. I know that you've hit some big homers and I've gotten some big outs and this is our life's work. And when, uh, when an attorney wins, a wins a case, like he's high fiving and, you know, fist pumping. And when, uh, when a salesman makes a big sale, you know, they're running up and down the halls, like, you know, doing the same stuff that we do. And like as, when a walk off homer happens. So, um, for me, my, my outlook has definitely evolved and, as long as it's genuine emotion, there's nothing wrong with it, in my opinion. Chris, I saw something this morning that made me think of you because I knew this interview was going to happen. And it was just this story on how a bunch of flat earthers were trying to change the shape of the <laughs> World Cup trophy from a, the proper globe to a flat earth. And it's interesting <laughs> to me, as one of the more learned athletes we have, a lot of athletes have been peddling you know, this flat earth theory over the last couple of years. I was wondering what you thought of people using a platform, because that's something we talked about in this interview and you've talked about a lot, is the importance of an athlete's platform to peddle this kind of bogus science. Like, is it irresponsible? Because sometimes they're joking. Like, where do you stand with the athlete flat earth fraternity? Well, the one thing I do appreciate is when we challenge uh, what we've been taught through the the traditional education system. Um, I'm not saying that flat earthers are right or wrong. I, um, you know, there's more information leading to the, them being wrong. But um, I always admire people who um, take that leap of faith and, and believe in something different. Um, because at the end of the day, what it doesn't really matter if the earth's flat or round. Like, as long as we're treating people on the earth the way that they should be treated we all should be treated which is equally and fairly and kindly uh it doesn't matter so you know whether you know somebody has a different opinion on on health and nutrition and religion and spirituality uh, or you know how the earth is shaped like it really doesn't matter as long as they're doing what they're supposed to be doing on that earth. That is a very diplomatic answer and I appreciate it. <laughs> hey arch 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 is the man, and he's going to give you what the people want. And also, another thing people don't know about Arch is this guy used to come into the clubhouse with his meals made every day. He's talking about uh, the way they eat. Are you still – Are you still? do you still have chef uh, that makes your meals? And, and can you talk about how much that means to you? Because obviously that's important, a part of the way you go about it. Yeah, well, JP, you're being modest um, because you use the same chef um, when you were playing, um, Chef Jorge, uh, he's great. Uh, he, in the off season, he comes to my house and cooks a uh, lunch and dinner, uh, five days a week. And during the season, it's a little tougher, but I'll tell you, man, the food has gotten so much better in the big leagues. Like we're not eating pizza and hot dogs pregame anymore. Uh, there's, there's a lot more variety. So, um, every home team and visiting team has a chef on site so in season i don't have to use chef jorge quite as much i still use him for occasions and when i have friends and family in town but yeah uh nutrition and, and general health is super important to me not just for the longevity of my baseball career but for the longevity of life yeah and uh obviously you're going to be living for a long time because you've been eating very well and i and george is one of the the better chefs Arch, this is the last. This is the last one for you, and I think this one is heavy 
uh, it's a it's a heavier question is in the game how do we get more African American presence in the sense of how do we how do we get more of that of of the urban uh, to start playing baseball because I think there's so many good athletes that maybe uh, have, can't play you know a certain sport but that's what they grew up that probably they could have been really really good in baseball uh, but it's not seemed a, it's not a cool sport and I you know I think the the numbers kind of prove that kind of we we miss it as a as a culture in that area how do we how do you think we can grow that yeah man that's a really good question I've done a lot of thinking on it um you touched on it a little bit, but, you know, expressing ourselves through the game and showing that it's cool, um, continuing the youth initiatives that the Players Association and MLB have. Um, the past few drafts, the numbers of black Americans that are playing are, are significantly higher. The ones that are getting drafted are significantly higher than even 10 years ago. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time, but – um, we're going to start to see an influx. It's not going to get back to where it was in the in the 70s, 80s, or even the 90s, but we're going to see, you know, a couple percentage increase over the next couple years, and, and hopefully 10 to 15 years from now, there's a 10% increase, and and that's, that's pretty significant. So we just need to stay on the path that we're on because we've invested a lot of money and a lot of time, uh, the Player Association and MLB, as long as we stay on that path and, and we keep making this game as cool as possible, I think we're going to see growth in that area. Well, I know now that I'll be making a trip to St. Pete, and when I do, I'm going to be expecting a catered a catered meal at your house by Chef George. And uh, right. I appreciate you coming on. You know you're one of my favorites. And if people don't know, Chris Archer is one of the better teammates and just human beings to be around. Also does not allow people to hit the baseball. He had a 13 strikeouts his last start, so you're bad. Uh, thanks for coming on. <laughs> yeah, guys. Thanks Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Thank you, Chris. I think that in that interview, we pretty much touched on just about I, that's the one thing I like about Chris Archer. You can ask him about more or less anything. There was hair, there was flat earth, there was baseball, there were legitimate questions. I think that might have been our widest ranging interview. Um, it's always nice to talk to someone who is a thoughtful guy who has contemplated a lot of different things in his life. Yeah, no, he is, he is a special. He is one of those guys, man, that's a one of one in the sense of he brings it on the field every day. He brings it in the in the work in the, in the workout room, whatever the gym. He brings it nutritionally and he brings it like as a presence, as an intelligence. I mean, he is he is a guy who throws a baseball for a living, but he is a guy that has so much more to him uh as a human being and really really is legitimately uh, caring for the well-being of others like you heard him touch about it is is how we treat each other is is a big thing and that's not just him answering the question and being politically correct that's him I mean I, I lived it with this guy I saw the way he did it in in the clubhouse I saw the way he treated everybody in the clubhouse so he's a special person and whoever picks him up if the if the Rays hold on to him obviously they're lucky but whoever gets the opportunity to have him on their team if they want somebody who's a winning player and a person in general chris archer is on the top of that list all right so we started this podcast essentially a little bit with raptors and then we went to rays this is a blue jays podcast so we got to bring it back with a little bit of toronto content and i wanted to open the door for us to talk about one of i know one of your favorite guys and a guy who's killing it right now, which is Lourdes Gurriel. We've talked to him before in this podcast about finding those building blocks and them being a little bit elusive for the Blue Jays. This is a guy, he's brought his average up to 281, five straight multi-hit games. It feels like since he came back sort of in July in general, he's looked like a different guy, very versatile. Where are you standing with Gurriel right now and his potential future at the Blue Jays? Well, one I, one thing I do love about him is his baseball IQ. I, uh, I mean, this guy, these these guys uh, that come off, you know, these island countries, and, and I mean, these guys are fighting for their lives to literally get out of a country though, so that they can have freedom. So they go about their business a little different than most. 
um, so they learn the game at a different rate because back where they are, where they were, they were born and raised, all they do is play. All these guys do know is baseball, 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 and more baseball. And so his baseball IQ is off the charts. And I and I saw it in a game in Boston where there was a ball in the hole and he and he glove he caught it with the glove and he flipped it to third base, which literally that that play it, I've not seen before. And he made it and he and he got the out and it just showed for me how the game is able to how he can see the game in his head which is a really big thing because some guys are special because they can see the game differently um and he's a guy obviously that that he can do that defensively everybody knows that this guy's gonna be good right uh, uh, he's a very athletic defender uh, the biggest always question i think for guys coming over is can they hit right because they're in their country they play you know they play in that that professional league in cuba and are there good players? Yes, but is it at major league caliber? No. Uh, so these guys, when they come over, the one question is: All right, is he going to be able to hit the way he hits in these international games and all that stuff? And yeah, he might face a good pitcher, but nothing like the big leagues. And I think if you look at his career, even when he was uh, in the in the Cuban, like the national whatever the league that they have over there, he he struggled his first couple years. Obviously, he was young. He was like 17, 18. And then his last two years in that league, he went and he hit 308. And then the next year, he hit 344. And so he continued to get better. Well, you know, he came into to the country. A lot of these guys have times adjusting, right? You always give them an adjust period. His first pro season, he put up some decent numbers. Nothing like crazy, but nothing. Not, I mean, really not that great. He hit 220. And then he went to the fall league and he hit 290. Now he's facing good competition. So for me, that goes, okay, this guy's facing big-time competition, hit, hit 290, that's good stuff. Well, he starts the year. Now he's got everything under him. And he goes off to double-A and he hits 350. And then he goes uh, to the big leagues and he was back in triple-A hitting 290. And now, he, now you see what he's doing in the big leagues. I think he's a guy who the more and more at-bats and, and opportunity he gets, you'll continue to see – uh, some big things out of him, and he's got a lot of power for a middle infielder, and and he's I do think that he's a special player and a guy that that they should be very excited to have because I think I mean you see what his brother did with the Astros and and continues to do. Um, I think that he's kind of cut with the same mold. I think he's more athletic than his brother, so they may have a guy who they have you know is one of the cornerstones. I mean you you see the young guys Grichuk. Hit a big, big home run uh, to win the to sweep the Orioles. Lourdes has had some really big home runs and some big hits and some big plays. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of good uh, that you can you can see, and I think Uriel, uh, Lourdes Guriel is is one of the guys that people should be excited about and be able to rally against or uh, around. So this is going to be me playing my stereotypical role now because. I like watching Guriel play. I like the hair. I like the swagger. I like the athleticism and the versatility. He scares me a little bit with his approach at the plate. Right now, he's rocking like a under 2% walk rate and an over 20% strikeout rate. Obviously, I think he can probably do better than that. But if you are going to have an approach where you don't walk much and you do strike out a fair amount, you need to bring quite a bit of power to make that really work. And for me, I'm not convinced he's, like you said, it's always the question, is the guy going to hit? I'm not convinced this guy is going to be a huge offensive contributor, but he's, for me, he's definitely going to be useful. Like he can play all these positions. He can play them fairly well, it seems. So for me, am I thinking of him as a future cornerstone? Maybe not as a future piece? Sure. And uh, like I said before, he's a guy I really enjoy watching him play. And, you know, he's one of those guys who could blossom more and more the more opportunities he gets because he actually hasn't played that much baseball in the last couple of years. The amount of baseball he's played has been reduced by him coming over. And so I think maybe another year down the line, we might hopefully see a different version of him at the plate, a more uh, balanced version. No doubt. I mean, think about it. You know, the first time you wrote a story where you freaking dialed in? No. <laughs> so this guy, I mean, this kid, the more and more experience you get in anything, the more and more comfortable you get, the more and more you know what to expect, the more and more he'll – Listen, this is his first time through in the major leagues. He's going to see a pitcher for the first time, and it's not easy to see a pitcher for the first time and just go out there and, and do well. 
the more and more you are around the league, you know, you talk to hitters and they say, you know, how they continue to improve. Well, they've seen this guy eight, seven, eight, nine, ten times. You have all these at bats against them. You know what they're going to do. You know what they're for hitters. You know what when you know what a pitcher breaking ball looks like. His his slider, his changeup, his fastball, his two seam. All these when you know what a pitcher looks like. And you don't have to go and watch video on him, or you, you just know how he attacks you. It's a it's a sense of of comfort. You just go out there and you play, and you have a better uh, success rate because of it. And I think that's something that he can. These guys, especially guys from Cuba, like you say, they first off they don't play very they don't play a lot uh, of games in Cuba. One, two, then they come over here and they have to learn how to adjust to life and stuff like that. And so, I mean. It's it's a big deal, but once these guys get their feet under them, they usually put up some pretty pretty big numbers. And not that uh, Lourdes is is that guy. Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. I mean, Rusny Castillo was a guy who kind of fell off a little bit for the for the Boston Red Sox, and he got a lot of money. Um, but you see what Hechevarria did and what he's been doing. You see Abreu. You see Puig. I mean, you see uh, Lourdes's brother. I mean, you see a lot of these guys. They they eventually figure it out and they eventually find them, themselves into the starting lineup every day. And again, one thing that is going to help him is being able to play all the different positions. I mean, you might even see him at some point go to the outfield just to mix it in in the outfield as well. Because if you have a guy like him who is a very versatile player and plays good defense and then becomes a, a, a consistent hitter like he has been, be, has, like he's been doing, then you actually have a Ben Zobrist kind of type of player, which is a very, very, very big thing to have. And I think the Blue Jays would be enormously pleased if he reached that Ben Zobrist level. I would be surprised if that happens, but I think, like I said before, I think he's a useful player. Negative Nancy. Negative <laughs> Nancy back on. I'd like to see him just take just take a couple walks, just like two, two or three walks. Anyway, uh you don't get off the island by walking. So yeah, we're not on the island anymore, out. though. We're on a big old chunk of continent, so it's time to take a couple walks. Anyway, I wanted to touch on this outside the nest because this story for me is hilarious. Rafael Palmero, 53 years old, I mean, 53, absolutely raking in the independent leagues. That might be exaggeration. Hitting 291, on base over 400, slugging over 500, with the, I don't, might not even be saying this right, the Cleburne, Cleburne? The Cleburne Railroaders of the American Association. So that's funny to me in and of itself. And then the added twist, if you guys haven't heard about it, is that his son is on the team, Patrick Palmero, and his son is hitting like 259, 311 on base, 414 slugging. So his dad, the dad is just absolutely crushing it, and the son's doing kind of okay. First of all, how impressed should we be by Rafi Palmero right now, and how embarrassed should the son be that his 53-year-old dad is killing it? Well, I'm not impressed by Rafi Palmero because he's facing guys that are probably topping out at 85. So I'm not that impressed with it. I think I hate that he's – I mean, yeah, it's cool. He's playing, blah, blah, blah. He's, and I'm sure it's fun that he gets to play with his dad. But, I mean, you're also watering it down. He's, his career, he was such a special player, man. Like – Go home. I mean, listen, I've talked to him. I've been around him in the cage before. He's a good he, – he is very nice, very, very nice to me. Very, I mean, just almost too nice that I, I thought it was like, oh, smokes. I didn't realize that this guy was this nice. But That's always suspicious when someone is too nice. It's like, what's this guy hiding? Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, man, this is weird. But, um, no, honestly, he, he – I mean, yeah, I, I think it's kind of just dumb that he's playing. But – now to the fact about if it was me and my dad was a Hall of Famer and I was a guy who's just playing and trying to stick around and maybe he played a little bit of pro ball but didn't really do anything, I, I would kind of be like, gosh, this sucks. My dad is is kind of kicking my ass and I'm way younger than he is and I think that it would kind of be more of a if – if my dad is supposed to be going home at some point and not playing this game anymore, then I sure as heck uh, need to kind of look at the I need to work on my resume. It's time, yeah. time to figure out what other skills you got. Yeah, but I mean, but but again, then you then you go back to the, just the human element. I mean, I think it's pretty cool that, that you can play with your dad uh, on a team. 
And so I'm sure that he's enjoying that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely – if I was in the clubhouse, I would be wearing him out, as I'm sure they are wearing him out, about, dude, I mean, come on, your dad's out hitting you. Like, I need you to pick it up. Like, this is not even uh, – this is something that can't happen. So I'm sure the guys give him the stuff, not in, in – obviously in good taste. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's pretty embarrassing at the end of the day. I mean, it's a situation we could see in the NBA with LeBron and his son being on the way up. We could have like an old man LeBron and his young son playing together, and old yeah, man LeBron talking, is killing it. Yeah, but you're talking about old man LeBron who's probably going to still be freaking killing it, and you're talking about them playing at the highest level on the world, not at some freaking pickup baseball game. In the uh, well, the, the this the, is the Clever and Railroaders, man. Don't hey, a lot I'm, of our fans are fans of the Clever and Railroaders. I don't want to alienate I, them. I apologize <laughs> for anybody who is who is uh, listening to this and is a big Railroaders or Riders fan, whatever the heck they are. I listen, Railroaders, Railroaders, uh, <laughs> whatever. I'm sure they're I'm sure they're phenomenal. I'm sure that everybody really the fans really embrace them. But at the end of the day. It is what it is. It's a fake baseball league. It's not a pro league. It's not. In, it's not. It's just. I mean, again, I, I hate to be the the bearer of bad news, but it's like saying that your your dodgeball <laughs> games are like super important. Nick, you're playing pickup dodgeball. I don't want to hear about your freaking how serious you it brought gets. it up. I was I was gonna let that lie probably forever. You're the one who brought it up. So. Finishing the podcast the way we always do, JP Career Trivia. Undoubtedly, it was a nasty memory lane. So we are going with a positive-ish JP Career Trivia. So looking through, and one thing I thought was kind of funny, I was thinking about you and your wheels because we were talking about steals before. I was looking at triples. So it turns out that you have four MLB triples, and they all came in the same season. So for some reason, in 2011, you were really trusting your legs out there. I wanted to see how many of these triples you remember, so I'll give you a point for each pitcher you can name that you tripled off of, and then if you have any memories of those turns around second that were relatively rare in your career. Uh, well, first I can tell you the one was opening day because Carl Pavano, uh, that I when we were playing the Twins, I hit one off the top. Or uh, no, not Carl Pavano. It might have been uh, Jeff Manship. We were playing the Twins. That is correct. One point. And and I hit it off the top of the wall, and the the outfielder hit the wall. Listen, let's be honest. I'm going to put this out here right now. The only times that I got triples were because an A an outfielder hit the wall and fell down, or B a guy misplayed the ball and they ended up having to go and get it. Uh, one of them was off my friend and old teammate in college, Luke Hochaver, in the Kansas City. Also correct. S same thing. I hit off. I hit it off the top of the wall, and Alex Gordon jumped into the wall to try to get it, and then it hit off the wall and and went away. So, again, all these triples. I'm putting it out there that all these triples were me rounding second base, being able to eat a hot dog and and have some soda pop with it. Like that's the kind of effort I was able to do that because. If I had to go at it hard to get a triple, it wasn't happening because that means that the ball was close to being thrown in. And if that was the case, I was going to be out by a mile, so I had to stay at second. So these were just like where you had to keep on running because they were they were still not close to the ball. Uh, I did one against the Tampa Bay Rays. I don't remember the pitcher's name, but this one I remember. It was one of those like uh, balls that, that were off the end of the bat, and Matt Joyce misplayed it, and it – it was on the turf in Toronto, and it took the hop over his head. And so it was like a bloop single that ended up me having to turn on my burners. Like, so if, if cars usually get to, what, like fifth and sixth gear, my burners are like third gear. That's like top gear for me. So I saw it go over his head, and uh, so I went to third on that. Um, but other than that, I don't remember. I know so that's three. I do remember that they were all four pretty quick in the season because I was on the top of the league, the, <laughs> league, the league for triples. Uh, and I remember seeing it like league leaders. I was up there for triples, and I would laugh because I was like, "Geez, talk about something that you would never think." Like that's like if pigs fly. Like when pigs fly, okay. That when JP hits triples is kind of in the same vein. Yeah, so you got two out of four. The other one, I'm assuming the Tampa Bay one was Juan Cruz. 
Yes, it was one. Yep, that's correct. The other one was Matt Palmer, who I've actually is a name that meant absolutely nothing to me. I saw it, I was like, I don't know who Matt Palmer is, but you, you know, trip I, off him. I can. I, okay, now that you say that, so I remember it was a line drive. I, I hit a ball really hard back up the middle, and Mike Trout dove for it, and he missed it. And so again, as as is the theme on my triples, somebody has to either misplay the ball or hit the wall or dive and not catch it. And so I was able to get to the wall and I got to third base. But again, that's the only way I was getting triples. And so again, that's how they all happened. None of them were like out of the box. I can never tell you like, man. You were just so was, feeling the triple out of the box. Yeah, out of the box. Listen, Nick, I remember it was a sunny day. My hamstrings felt really good. And I hit this ball in the right center field gap. And, I, man, you know what I just said? I feel real fast. I'm just going to go fast. I'm going to be like Ricky Bobby and go fast. And I just hustled around second. I, the, the coach was telling me to stay, and I just did a hook slide. And, and bang, bang, dude. And I just got in there. I was so fired up. No, honestly, it was like, well, the outfielder died, so I was able to get to third base. I do, I do want to give you one piece of credit, though, which is that Roger Center is a very hard park to hit triples in. So I remember Jose Reyes came to the Blue Jays. Everyone's like, this guy is awesome for triples. And then he hit like no triples because there's just no gaps to find in that park. So maybe if you played more of your career somewhere else, you might have had, you know, as many as seven or eight triples. Look, I, see, that's you being trying to be positive, And this is going to be the realist guy. Uh, not happening. I don't care if I was playing in Yosemite Park. It, somebody was going to keep the ball close enough that I couldn't run to third base. All right. Well, we will wrap on that note. Thank you guys for listening to episode 13 of the podcast. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, wherever you get it, to hear more of JP just describing in gruesome detail just how slow he was and presumably still is because he probably hasn't gotten any faster.